please uh, turn your Bibles with me to Ruth chapter 2. As you turn to Ruth chapter 2, we're going to be standing in a moment and, and reading through that. As we read through Ruth chapter 2, we're, we're going to uh, stand, but uh, we're, we're going to be reading the entire chapter, and so if you need to sit while we, while we read that, that's, that's fine. Please feel free to do that. You can honor God in your heart as we continue to read uh, Ruth chapter 2. And so if, uh, if you're there now, why don't you go ahead and stand with me if you're able, and we're going to read uh, through the chapter I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Ruth chapter 2. Remember Ruth and Naomi have left Moab and have returned to Bethlehem, and it's the beginning of the harvest season, verse 1 of Ruth 2. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some bundles for her and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her the, the food that she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, 
the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, It is good, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of, of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning, your words of comfort and encouragement. I pray that you would instruct us in how to rightly live as we look at your word. May your Holy Spirit work within our hearts. We pray this morning for those who are hurting, for those who are grieving, and for those who need an extra dose of your love and grace. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week as we came to the end of Ruth chapter 1, and we looked at Ruth chapter 1, we saw that there's kind of a, a major theme that dominates the book of Ruth, and that is that, that God reveals his gracious love through the extravagant kindness of his people. God reveals his gracious love through the extravagant kindness of his people. As God's people practiced kindness, his gracious love is demonstrated. In fact, that word kindness that we see in the book of Ruth, we saw as a, a Hebrew word, the Hebrew word hesed. And that word hesed can be translated loyalty or devotion or, or steadfast love. Here in the book of Ruth, hesed refers to kindness, an extravagant kindness, a kindness that demonstrates God's provision. Here at the end of Ruth chapter 1, we saw Ruth and Naomi are in need of God's hesed, of extravagant kindness demonstrated to them. Throughout the ages, we've had people in need of grace and physical provision. And one of the struggles that we have is, is how do we best provide for those who have physical needs? How do we best provide for those in need of, of hesed, of, in need of extravagant kindness? In the Middle Ages, there was a Jewish rabbi named Maimonides, and Maimonides classified different levels of charity. He was writing in the, the 12th century, and he, he classified these levels of charity. He said there's kind of eight levels of charity, and the very lowest level, the eighth level of charity, is to give begrudgingly. That's the, the lowest, yeah, it's charity, but it's the lowest type of charity you can practice. He said slightly better is to give graciously and cheerfully, but not enough. The sixth level of charity, he suggested, was, was to give when asked to give. The fifth level of charity was to give without being asked, but to give uh, in such a way that both you and the person receiving knew who was receiving and who was giving. The fourth level of charity, Maimonides suggested, was to give in such a way that you didn't know who was receiving your gift, but they knew who was giving it to them. Maimonides talked about how sometimes Jewish 
scribes, prominent people would tie coins to their robes and they'd allow these, these coins to kind of flow behind them as they walked through the streets of the city and a poor person could come up and, and grab a coin and not feel the shame of having to ask for the money. He said the next level of charity was to give in such a way that you found out about a need, that this is the third level of charity, you found out about a need and so you, you would anonymously give to that need and they wouldn't know that you were the person who'd given it to them. He talks about how sometimes people would go around and, and open doors and, and throw in coins. My address, by the way, no. That's the third level of charity. The, the second level of charity, the next highest level of, of charity, was to give in such a way that neither the giver nor the recipient knew who had given or who had received. But then he said the highest level of charity, the, the, most, uh, the most effective and, and pure form of charity, is to provide for a person in such a way that you enable them to meet their own needs on a long-term basis. So you invest in a business that they have, or you buy them some tools so that they can, can work for themselves. And, and sometimes you even provide for them in such a way that, that they're meeting their own needs and they don't even know that you've provided the means for them to do so. He said, that's the highest, most effective level of, of charity. Now, as you think about how we sometimes practice charitable giving, perhaps like me, you're a little frustrated and you wonder about the effectiveness of your own giving. And sometimes, and maybe I've experienced this, maybe you have as well, you, you give and you're trying to help a person as you give, you wonder, boy, I don't even know, not only do I don't know if I'm really meeting a need, I may be making their situation worse. There's a book called When Helping Hurts. It's called When Helping Hurts. I read through it last year. Very interesting, some of the things that these authors are, are talking about. And one of the authors is a believer who's traveled to Uganda, and he was talking about his time in a Ugandan slum. He said he was in this Ugandan slum. He was working with a local church there. And one day he went into this, this hut of a woman who was dying. And he talked to a person that was there. He said, what's wrong with her? She said, well, you know, she's had a surgery. It, you know, it was just a local person performing the surgery on her, and uh, she's, she's not doing so well. He says, well, what does she need? And the woman said, she needs some penicillin, but it'll cost about $8, which was an extravagant sum for that, that, that uh, area. And so he said that he just reached into his pocket. He pulled out $10 or something said, here, go ahead and buy the medicine for her. He says that on his way home, riding on the airplane, he realized what an ineffective job he had done meeting that need. He said, if I had really thought about it, what I would have done is I would have gone to the pastor of that community that had been working with this woman who was sick, and I, I would have told him about the need, and I would have involved him in this process, and I would have worked to, to have kind of a long-term solution to the, this problem instead of just as an arrogant North American who's wealthy throwing some money at it. He said, I would have worked with the community so that community could have seen ways that they could use their resources to meet that need. When I was a, a, a seminary student, I remember one of the orientation sessions, I was, uh, the security guard came and talked to all of us new uh, seminary students, and he said, you're going to be approached as you come on campus to, to give money to people. They're going to ask you if, they, if you can, homeless people are going to come and say, can I have some money? He says, don't give them money. Here are the list of some agencies that can work with these people and help them on a long-term basis. Over and over again throughout my life, I've been confronted with the idea that sometimes 
my giving to people in, in need isn't effective. And sometimes it's even detrimental. And maybe you've experienced that frustration as well. Now, I don't believe the answer is for us to say, well, my giving isn't very effective, therefore I suppose I shouldn't give anything at all. If anything, you and I should be giving more. Most of the world, 40% of the world lives on $2 a day. We have been entrusted with incredible physical resources. We need to use those. We just need to use them in a more effective way. And so the question I want you to think about this morning, and hopefully you're already thinking about this question, is how do I, as a believer, give in a God-glorifying way? How do I, as a believer, give in a way that, that God is glorified and I'm using my physical resources in an effective manner? The question of Ruth chapter 2, or kind of the theme of Ruth chapter 2, is, is how do the righteous provide for the needy? How do the righteous practice hesed? How do the righteous practice extravagant kindness? That's what we're going to look at this morning as we go through Ruth chapter 2. And as we go through Ruth chapter 2 and we see how the righteous practice hesed, practice extravagant kindness, we're going to first of all just look at the story and then we're going to look at some principles that help you and I practice extravagant kindness to those who are in need. Let's go ahead and look at the story and, and remember where we are, the end of Ruth chapter 1, what's happened. Ruth and Naomi are two widows in great need. In fact, Ruth and Naomi fit all the categories in Scripture of what we call the disenfranchised, those who, who don't have the means to provide for themselves. They're part of the widow orphans, people who've lost family members and don't have family members to help provide for them. Not only are they people who've lost family members, they're they're poor. They don't have the resources necessary to survive on their own. And furthermore, Ruth is a foreigner. She's not part of this community in which she's entering. So Ruth and Naomi are widow, part of the widows. They are poor. They, Ruth is a foreigner. They are all the classes of the disenfranchised that God calls his people to help meet their needs. Also in Ruth chapter 1, remember what's happened. Ruth has declared her allegiance to Yahweh God. She has said, I'm leaving my people. I'm abandoning my parents, my family. And I'm entrusting myself to your God, Naomi. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That's what the commitment Ruth has made. Naomi also has a problem in Ruth chapter 1. Naomi has committed, or Naomi is, is, is bitter. And Naomi, in fact, as we come to the end of, of Ruth chapter 1, has said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Uh, don't call me pleasant, but instead call me bitter. And so as we come to the end of Ruth chapter 1, there are some questions in our mind. One question is, has Ruth made the right decision? Ruth, as she's abandoned her gods, these Moabite gods, Kamash and the other Moabite gods, has she made a good decision? As she's entrusted herself to the care and protection of Yahweh God, was she foolish to do so, or was she right to do so? Naomi, the question with her is, is she right to be bitter? Whenever she says that Yahweh God no longer cares for her, is Naomi right or wrong? In short, God's glory is on the line at, end, at the end of Ruth chapter 1. Is God a God that cares for the widow, the foreigner, 
the poor. Is God a God that the poor, the foreigner, the widow orphan can come and seek refuge in? Or is he a God who doesn't care for the impoverished? So that's the setup of the stories we enter chapter 2. And the narrator tells us that Naomi has a relative, and this relative's name is Boaz, and he is a, a worthy man, he is a, a prominent man, and he's from the same clan as Elimelech. In other words, he's a family member. He presumably would have some sort of responsibility for a fellow, man, a fellow family member. He's a worthy man, the ESV tells us, a, a prominent man, he's everything that Ruth and Naomi aren't. They're women, he's a man. They are the disenfranchised, he is the enfranchised. He's the one who, who has control over his destiny from a human perspective. He has the ability to meet his own needs. He's influential. Ruth and Naomi are completely lacking in influence. So Boaz is introduced to us as this third character in our drama. Ruth goes to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she's very bold, and she says to Naomi, let me go and, and glean in the fields. What does that mean? Well, God and the law that he gave the Israelites instructed them in how they should help care for the impoverished. Luke, uh, Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 22, God tells them, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. In other words, you, you don't get everything, and, and whenever, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Whenever things fall onto the field, field's floor, allow, he says, the, the poor and the, the sojourner to have them. I am Yahweh, your God. Uh, I, God, Yahweh, am providing for the needs of the poor and the sojourner, the foreigner. Allow them to have the resources they need to survive and to be able to glean in your fields. So Ruth goes to Naomi and she says, Naomi, very boldly here, let me go. I, in fact, it seems like almost no time has passed. Remember the end of chapter one, it's the beginning of the harvest season. Ruth recognizes the harvest season could sometimes be very short. And so she says, you know, Naomi, let me at it. Let me go glean. Let me go ask someone if I can glean in their field and help provide for us. And Naomi's response continues, I think, to reveal that she's struggling with bitterness. It's very short, but, but kind to Ruth. She says, go, my daughter. Go do it. Now, why doesn't Naomi participate in this? Presumably, she's healthy enough. She's made this travel from Moab to Bethlehem, but for whatever reason, Naomi doesn't participate in the gleaning. Ruth does. Verse 3 tells us that she goes and she sets out and she begins to glean in the field. Now, what she would have done is she would have gone to a huge, tremendous tract of land next to Bethlehem. In fact, you, you may think, okay, well, there's these different fields and each people own these fields. No, it'd, it'd be one gigantic field that would be owned and uh, it, that would be uh, the community field here. And, and different people in the community would own sections of that field. They didn't separate the fields. They wanted to keep as much land as possible, available for, for planting the crops and stuff. And so Boaz, or whoever, a prominent person, would have certain sections of that field that, that he owned, and they would be marked by stones. And so Ruth goes out to this large field, and the writer tells us, now it happened, kind of like, it's, it seems almost by chance, and yet we know there's a sovereign God at work here. Ruth goes out, and she happens upon this large tract of land, and she goes onto the field, and she enters the portion of the field that belongs to Boaz, and she begins to glean there. 
Now, it also happens, the narrator tells us, again, a, a God-ordained sovereign coincidence, Boaz comes out. And the first words we hear out of Boaz's mouth in the story is he comes and he says to the people that are in the field that are working for him, he says, God be with you. Yahweh, may his presence be with you. Kind of an interesting thing for Boaz to say. May, may God be with you. May God's presence be manifested among you. And the workers respond, and the Lord bless you. May this be a great harvest for you. Boaz looks out, he sees his people working in this portion of the field, and he looks and he sees someone that he doesn't recognize. So he calls this young guy over to him that's in charge of his workers, and he says, now, who's that? Who, whose young woman is that? The young man in charge of the reapers responds to Boaz in verse 6. He says, now, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. You've heard about her, Boaz. Remember in chapter 1, she comes back and all Bethlehem's astir. And Boaz, oh yeah, I remember chapter 1. He knows who Ruth is. She's this Moabite that has come back with Naomi. He says, she said to me, verse 7, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reaper. And she came and she's continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Now this is a very hard verse to translate, but I think the ESV gets the sense here very well. Ruth has come. She knew that the law was, presumably from Naomi, that she could glean after the, the reapers, but not all Israel practiced what God told them to do very faithfully. Sometimes, as a worker would come into a field, he or she could suffer abuse from the regular workers. There could be this antagonism that developed between the people who were working for the person who owned that tract of land and the poor people. There could be abuse hurled at them. There could be derisive comments made. There could even be physical abuse. And that's certainly the danger that Ruth, a young woman from a, another country who was poor and a widow, could face. And the young man says, she came to me, she asked before she began gleaning, even though the law gave her that right, she asked for permission to do that. And I believe to Boaz's credit, the young man who's in charge of the reapers knows what his, his uh, boss would want him to do. And so he says, yeah, of course you may glean. And she says, she has been hard at it, man. She has been working from early morning until now, and it's probably about mid-morning at this point, and she's had like a little bit of a rest, but very brief. Boaz says, thanks, man. Walks over to Ruth and speaks very kindly to her. He says, Ruth, come here. And she comes and they begin to talk. And he, he says, listen, my daughter. Very kind words for him to say to her. He says, he says pay attention, my daughter. Don't glean in another field or another part of this field, but, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. In other words, don't just kind of wander all around this field going to different people's tracts of land. Stay on the land that belongs to me. I, I want you to be where I have jurisdiction. And then he says, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. I've charged the young men not to touch you. And by the way, when you get thirsty, Drink the water that my young men have drawn. Boaz is assuming responsibility for the care and protection of Ruth. He's telling Ruth, where I have the ability to take care of you, stay in that area so I can take care of you. I want to keep you safe. I don't want to keep you 
with the things you need to do what you're trying to do. Ruth hears this guy saying these things to her, and she's somewhat taken aback. Imagine the situation Ruth has been in. She's traveled from Moab. She's coming to this, this, this place where she doesn't know anyone. She's, she's confused. She, she doesn't know how she's going to provide for her and Naomi. And yet now there's this guy whose field she's happened to come into that desires to meet her physical needs and protect her. You can imagine the fear that she's had too as she's gone into these fields. She's heard stories about things that happen to people in the gleaning fields when no one's looking. And now there's this man taking personal, a prominent man taking personal care for her. She's overwhelmed. She falls to the ground and she has this question for Boaz as she falls to the ground. Why? That's her question. One of the most important questions in the book of Ruth. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Boaz, she's saying, what's the deal? What obligation do you have to care for me? Why are you, you taking this special notice of me? You have no obligation to do so. I'm a foreigner. And then Boaz responds with, again, one of the most important responses to a question in the book of Ruth. And don't let anyone ever tell you that theology is not important or that theology is some sort of abstract thing that's separate from real life and practical living, Boaz's answer here is incredibly theologically sound and it affects how he treats Ruth. He says, I know, verse 11, I know that all you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, it's been fully told to me. I know how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. I know what you've rejected. I know what you've turned your back on. You left Moab. You left the god of Chemosh. Chemosh, by the way, was, was not a very good god. He was a god that would call on his people to sacrifice their own children. So that's the god that she's left, a god that you, you can't be safe of even if you're part of that community. In fact, in, I believe it's in 2 Kings, uh, the king of Moab sacrifices his own son before entering into a battle with Israel. Not a good God. Not the God you'd, you'd really get excited about being a part of, of, his, of his people. He, she has turned her back on that God. And listen to what Boaz says in verse 12. He says, may the Lord repay you. And that, that word Lord there is Yahweh. May Yahweh repay you. For what you've done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. As you have chosen to come to Yahweh God, the God of Israel, may you find shelter in his wings. Boaz believes that God is a God in whom Ruth can find protection and refuge. Listen to what the psalmists say about God's protection. I'll read several psalms to you here. Psalm 17. Psalm 17, verse 7 says, Wondrously show your steadfast love. That's that same word we've translated kindness. Hesed, wondrous, wonder, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. This is verse 8. Hide me 
in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 36, verse 6 begins, Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your hesed, your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the rivers of, river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your, your hesed, your steadfast love, to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. That's Psalm 36, verses 6 through 10. Yahweh God is a God that the hopeless can come to and find his righteousness and his steadfast love, his extravagant kindness to sinners and can obtain the righteousness of God as they find shelter and protection underneath his wings. Psalm 57, the psalmist says, In you my soul takes refuge in the shadows, shadow of your wings. I will take refuge till the storms of destructions pass by. Psalm 61, verse 1, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you and my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Psalm 63, verse 7, You've been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Psalm 91, 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Boaz believes in a God that the poor, the hopeless, the helpless can find refuge in. And Boaz, as Ruth says to Boaz, why have I found favor in your sight? What does Boaz respond? He responds, you have found shelter under the wings of the Almighty, under the wings of Yahweh God. Boaz, as he sees his care and protection for Ruth, doesn't point Ruth back to himself. He points her back to Yahweh God. He says, you've abandoned your God, you've abandoned the gods of your people, and you've come to find protection in Yahweh God. And as you find protection in me, you're ultimately finding your protection in Yahweh. It's an incredibly astute, deep theological truth that Boaz points Ruth to here. Boaz tells this to her, and she says in verse 13, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. You've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. Then she goes back and she begins to get to work. She's a hard worker. We're going to see in just a moment what a hard worker she is. She goes to work. Mealtime comes by. And Boaz continues his kindness, his hesed to Ruth. Mealtime comes along and he says, hey, Ruth, come over here. Eat some bread and, and, and dip your morsel, this, this little grain cake that you have, in, in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers and, and he passed to her the roasted grain and she ate until she satisfied. Boaz calls her over here. He, he allows her to share the meal with the people that are, that are part of his, his inner group. He allows her to, to share the the, the wine with them, he even serves her, passing her the food. Boaz's care and protection of, Naomi, of Ruth is extensive here. 
He goes above above and beyond what he's required to do by law. He's practicing extravagant kindness. And then he gives, as she gets up and goes, she wants to get back up. Verse 15, she rose to glean. Everyone else is still eating. She's like, I got to go. Got to get back to work. And as she leaves, he tells the young men, he's bypassing the young man in charge. He's going directly to the guys that are out there working. He says, guys, listen up. Let her glean even among the things we've gathered. Some people as they would gather their, their sheaves together, they would tell people who are poor, stay away from that area, because as we gather things together, we've already gathered it, but some extra stuff's gonna fall, leave it alone. Boaz says, no, let her go in that area as well. In fact, pull some out from the bundles and let her get that too. Leave it for her to glean that and don't rebuke her. At the end of the day, it's time to go, and she's collected about 30 pounds. <laughs> would normally take a person two weeks to gather that much barley. And she goes and she tells her mother-in-law what's happened. Naomi is, is struck by what's taken place. And her heart seems to be softened in a little bit here. Now, she doesn't bless Yahweh yet. She says in verse 19, blessed be the man who took notice of you. She tells him that it's Boaz and tells her that it's Boaz. And Naomi says, well, may he be blessed by the Lord. And then I believe she's talking about Boaz still here, that Boaz's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, Naomi is less bitter here, but I still don't believe that she's responded with worship of Yahweh yet. And then Naomi says something very interesting. She says, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers, one of our redeemers. A redeemer, a redeemer was a person, according to, to one commentator, puts it this way, a redeemer is a near relative who's responsible for the economic well-being of a relative, and he comes into play especially when the relative is in distress and cannot get himself or herself out of the crisis. And so a redeemer, we see throughout the Old Testament law, would come in whenever a relative was, was in danger. For example, a, a relative would, have to, would be in physical danger and they'd have to sell part of the family land. And the redeemer would come in after the land had already been sold and, and buy it back and restore it to the family. A redeemer would come in when an individual had had to come to the point where they sold themselves into slavery. And after they sold themselves into slavery, the near relative would come back and would redeem them out of slavery, buy them back. And and they had to allow this near relative to redeem them. The redeemer in scripture, the redeemer in the Old Testament, the redeemer here in the book of Ruth is obviously a picture of Jesus Christ who comes when a person is at their most destitute and redeems them back, buys them back, and provides them the freedom that they need in order to live in a God-glorifying way. So Naomi tells Ruth, Boaz is one of our near relatives. We come to the end of the chapter. We see in verse 23 that she continues to, to glean in Boaz's parts of the field And then there's this ominous note, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. The time of harvest is coming to an end, and now what's going to happen to Ruth? What's going to happen to Naomi? The question I asked at the beginning was, how do believers ensure that their physical care for others is God-glorifying and, and truly helpful. Let's look at some principles now of, of how we can ensure that our, our 
our extravagant kindness to the poor is effective. Here's, here's the first principle. First of all, to practice extravagant kindness to the poor, you must embrace your responsibility to care for them. You must embrace your responsibility to care for them. The first two verses are kind of interesting. First of all, we, we notice that there's this guy, Boaz, and he's of the, the clan of Elimelech. And it's kind of interesting that in, in verse 3, the narrator reminds us, the next time he mentions Boaz, he says, Boaz, oh yeah, remember he's of the clan of Elimelech, hint, hint. <laughs> a family has a response, three thoughts here about embracing your responsibility to care for the, to care for the poor. First of all, understand that the family has responsibility to care for the poor. If you have a family member who's in, engaged in a, at a time of, of trial, I believe ex- practicing extravagant kindness means that you have the responsibility to help provide for family members' physical needs. First Timothy 5 tells us this as well. So, first of all, family has responsibility to care for the poor. Secondly, the wealthy have a responsibility to care for the poor. The wealthy essentially includes every single person in this room. Perhaps one or two exceptions. I'd be surprised, though. Most of the world, is, or 40% of the world, as I mentioned earlier, lives on $2 a day. Okay, So most of us have more resources than 40% of the world, at least. Most of us have more resources than 90% of the world. And so the wealthy have a responsibility to care for the needs of the poor. That's especially true in, within the church. I think there should be a, a little bit of an unease whenever we encounter widely different standards of living among Christ's church. James chapter 2 James says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily need, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In other words, a person in the church comes to you, and and they're not necessarily asking for anything. You you see that they're in need, and you say, hey, brother, man, go get warm and eat up, (laughs) but do absolutely nothing to provide for them. What good is that? It's completely ineffective. Those of us who have resources have the responsibility to help provide for those who don't. And that's especially true within Christ's church. But thirdly, not only do family members have a responsibility to care for the poor, not only do wealthy people have a responsibility to care for, for, care for the poor, but guess who else has a responsibility to care for the poor? The poor have a responsibility to care for other poor people. What does Ruth have? As she comes into Bethlehem from Moab, what does Ruth have? She has, she has nothing. And yet, who does she take responsibility for? Naomi. Even though she has no resources of her own, she recognizes that she has a responsibility to care for her widowed mother-in-law. And so she falls through on that responsibility. So to practice extravagant kindness, to practice the the hesed that God calls us to, first of all, it means embracing your responsibility to care for the poor, saying, look, I understand to practice extravagant kindness, I need to embrace that I have a responsibility to be engaged in this task. Secondly, to practice extravagant kindness to the poor, it means that you must meet their physical needs. 
you must meet their physical needs. Kind of four thoughts here. First of all, I believe it's important, we see here in the text, to, to let them be aware of our commitment to them. A church, a people who are going to care effectively for people in need, need to let people know this is a place that you can find help and assistance. Boaz lets it be known among his workers, among this foreman, hey, this is a place that the poor can come and not face rebuke. This is a place that is a safe place for people to express their needs. At Bethany Community Church, we need to be proactive in letting people in need know this is a place you can come to and help find assistance for your physical needs. Not only that, but we must also we must also recognize that the poor are going to sometimes have barriers to meeting their needs that you and I can't see. It's very easy for us to say, well, you need to kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You need to kind of get out there, get a job, do whatever. There are real barriers that exist to being able to, to, for people sometimes to meet their needs that you need to be sensitive to and gracious toward, even if you don't see that as necessarily a barrier. There are cycles of poverty that develop in communities, develop in families, that, that render people within that cycle in need of some, some extra grace in order to be able to meet their needs. Ruth is a Moabite. Boaz is extremely sensitive Boaz is extremely sensitive to the racial component here of Ruth's need. He understands that Ruth has a barrier here to meeting her physical needs, that people are not going to treat her the same as they would a fellow Israelite. And many of us are in the dominant uh, the dominant ethnic culture in our country and are, are sometimes we lack sensitivity to the needs that people who are not in the majority ethnic culture have. If you're going to truly practice extravagant kindness and meet people's physical needs, you need to be aware of the barriers that exist for them to be able to meet their own needs as well. Thirdly, as we think about this, we need to recognize that sometimes, this is very important, sometimes an antagonistic relationship develops between people who are meeting needs and people who are having their needs met. Does that make sense? Sometimes an antagonistic, a hostile relationship develops between people who are trying to meet physical needs and people who are having their physical needs met. I read an interesting book, of, I believe a couple months ago, it's called Compassion, Justice, and the Christian Life. And I, I don't... Uh, I'm not necessarily recommending it, although I think there's some really good ideas in here. But uh, this, this uh, author says that one time he was volunteering on a remodeling project in the inner city. And he came across a yellowed paper sign taped to the wall of an old storage uh, room entitled Clothes Clause. And I don't know if you can see it, but, but at the very top it says no smoking. And then it has this flyer and then a bunch of things written in. And he says you can see... By, this was written in uh, 1962, you can see that some sort of hostile relationship developed between this church and the people whose needs they were trying to meet. First of all, it just kind of was very simple, a clothes closet. Then they started adding all these rules. Okay, uh, you can have up to five articles for 10 cents. Then they added no credit. Then they said uh, five articles refers to an individual or a family. Uh, items that come in pairs count as one article. Okay, you can see what happened, right? 
people came in and started trying to game the system. And the people who were trying to meet their needs started making more rules so they couldn't beat the system. And there developed this hostile relationship between the people meeting the needs and the people whose needs were trying to be met. He says, as he, as he writes about this, this article, he says, somewhere in the process of ministering, the poor became their adversaries. He talks about how anyone who's been given the unfortunate task of dispensing free or nearly free commodities will soon have a familiar war story to tell. Something seems to go wrong when one with valuable, valued resources attempts to distribute them to others in need. The transactions, no matter how compassionate, seem to go sour in the gut of both giver and recipient. Listen to this. A subtle, a subtle, unintentional message slips through. You have nothing of worth that I desire in return. Talk more about that in a moment. The giver remains protected by his one-up status while the recipient is exposed and vulnerable. It It becomes hard to be a cheerful giver and even harder to be a cheerful recipient. As we meet people's physical needs, we need to be aware that the tendency of our sinful hearts become antagonistic toward the people whose needs we're trying to meet and vice versa. It's a spiritual reality. As you practice extravagant kindness, you need to be aware of. Boaz is aware of that and is mindful of calling his people not to rebuke her. Finally, third, the fourth thing about here about meeting the physical needs, fourthly, be lavish. Be lavish in meeting people's needs, both on a physical level and spiritual. The third, third principle here, third principle is you practice extravagant kindness. I've already t- touched on this a little bit. The third, category, third characteristic, protect their dignity. Protect the dignity of the people you're trying to help. First, treat them as equals. Treat them as equals. Secondly, don't presume that they have nothing to offer. Paternalism says, I have everything and you have nothing. As we meet the needs of those who are impoverished, we treat them as those who have value. Boaz treats Ruth as one with value, and you provide opportunities for them to meet their own needs. Finally, the fourth characteristic of extravagant kindness, and this is the most important, seek their redemption. Physical care for a person is a picture of God's spiritual care for us. As Boaz meets Ruth's physical needs, he points her to the theological reality that Yahweh God is a gracious God under whose wings you can find shelter and rescue and refuge. As people come to Bethany Community Church, what is our message to them? First and foremost, we are proclaiming to people the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the great redeemer that he is the great redeemer, and no matter what your need, no matter what you've done, no matter what you need forgiveness of, God offers you full and complete and total forgiveness as you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, Jesus Christ who paid the penalty of your sin on the cross and rose from the dead. That's the message we proclaim, and as a church, we prepare people to worship Jesus Christ forever. Now, what kind of church will we be if we said, now, God offers this redemption, this full redemption, this gracious provision, and whatever needs you have, tough luck. 
No, we are a church that says God has been gracious to us beyond our comprehension. And now our character has been so fundamentally changed as we have been redeemed that we are extravagantly kind. We are kind in whatever realm you ask us to be kind. We want, we embrace our responsibility to care for you in whatever way you need care. We want to meet your physical needs. We want to protect your dignity as we care for you, recognizing that you have value and worth and needs and we are not better than you as we meet your needs and we want you to be redeemed by Yahweh God as well. Turn from this Kamash, God, turn from your Moab, God, turn from your God of materialism, turn from your God of drugs or addictions or whatever your gods are and embrace Yahweh, God, and find his care and his protection, his hesed, his extravagant kindness. That's what we want to communicate to people by God's grace in our church and in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption. We thank you for his lavish kindness on us. We pray that we would practice this kindness with others for your glory. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.